You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bosevich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon. And welcome to the Bo's Nose Show from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon. And uh, I am your host, Jay Bozovich, West Lane County Commissioner. And today we have on the show Lane County Sheriff Byron Trapp uh, to talk about everything from jail levies to who knows what else. And if you want to ask Sheriff Trapp a question, you can get into the show at 646-721-9887 and just press one and that lets us know that you want to uh, get in the queue for a question. So, uh, Byron, welcome to the show. Byron, I'm sorry. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, No problem. Um, so, yesterday, the, the Board of Commissioners held two public hearings. We have one during the day and one in the evening for those folks that can't make daytime meetings uh, on the uh, proposal that you brought to us to put the renewal of the um, public safety levy on the May ballot. And after the end of the second hearing, we voted to put it on the ballot. Um, and it... it um, Got a unanimous vote from the commissioners. Um, for the folks that may not be fully aware, can you just kind of really quickly explain, um, you know, what we chose to do yesterday and what what the what the re-up of the levy will do? Yeah. So this is the levy uh, that was originally passed by the voters in uh, May of 2013. So just right at four years ago, it was passed as a five-year. Uh, levy uh, at a value of 55 cents per thousand dollars of assessed value of property and uh, was uh, the language in the original measure was limited uh, very uh, tightly to uh, funding exclusively jail operations and uh, youth service uh, detention and treatment beds in the county's youth services division and uh, we have operated uh, within the bounds of of the levy as it was constructed and have actually been able to provide, I think, uh, quite a bit more service than we anticipated, certainly more service than the levy required. And uh, it's, it's we're nearing the end of it. There's one year left for, before expiration. So my concern became twofold. One is I did not want to see an interruption in the level of services that we have been able to restore with the funding of the levy that was passed four years ago. And the other is I'm starting to run up against a little bit of a challenge for recruitment and even retention of the newer deputies that we've hired when they're looking at only a year of sustainable funding as opposed to a renewed levy that would offer some future years of of sustainable funding and job security. So it's a very competitive world in law enforcement recruitment right now. We're able to actually hire only about 2% of our applicants. So it it is really a big issue for us in the recruitment retention world. So for a couple of those reasons, uh, I, I took the request forward to the board. The renewal is truly, in all sense of the word, an actual renewal of exactly what was passed four years ago. There's no changes to the structure. The funds will still be used exclusively for jail operations and youth treatment and detention beds. The funds collected from the levy will still be kept in an isolated individual account. Uh, They will still be audited annually. We've had three audits so far. 
uh, we will continue to audit these funds annually to verify that they have been kept separate from other county funds, that they have been used exclusively for jail and youth service op operations. And we will continue to maintain a minimum, minimum of 255 jail beds available for local offenders, as the, the uh, language requires. And so uh, I'm confident that uh, we will continue forward and without any uh, hiccups in, in the ability to provide this level of service. I think the community has seen the uh, tangible and uh, measurable benefits that this has provided in the four years since. Uh, it's allowed us to more open more than two, open, uh, increase jail capacity by more than 250%, uh, which sounds really tremendous, but it's only from 125 beds to 317. So we're still a very small jail considering the jurisdiction we serve, but 317 beds has allowed us to be functionally operational within the criminal justice system we're serving. Uh, we've reduced capacity-based releases by over 63%. Uh, we're still re reducing people early from the jail, uh, but they're not the very dangerous, violent offenders they were four years ago. So uh, for all those reasons, I was uh, very pleased uh, uh, with the board's action last night, and it, it puts us moving forward with some certainty that we'll get this back to the voters uh, and we'll have the opportunity to hear from them between now and then and uh, make sure that uh, if there's any questions to be answered, uh, we'll do that. Yeah, and this is, uh, you know, my show here today is the first chance for folks to get some questions answered. And I just want to remind folks that they can call us at 646-721-9887 and just press one and that lets me know that you want to talk to me and Brian uh, and uh, we can answer your questions, hopefully. So um, I just want to try and clarify for folks um, the rate that we're talking about when you talk about it's a true renewal and all that stuff, it's the exact same rate that was approved in 2013. So this won't be a, uh, an increase um, necessarily to folks' taxes. Correct. As, as much as it will be um, a uh, just a, a kept the same, although there might be um, some changes like this last year, the, the budget committee and the board chose not to levy the full amount of, of what was approved by the voters. Instead of 55 cents, we only levied 38 cents. Correct. So it, there's actually a decrease in the tax this year, and I think we're projecting to do the same thing this upcoming year. Correct. And what we do in future years may change, so it, right. it has the possibility of going back to 55 cents in the future, right. but um, it, it's really the same maximum rate that was approved in 2013. Right. So, yeah, so the so, vote the vote will say that the county uh, is approved to collect up to 55 cents per thousand dollars assessed value. And so what that means in, under Oregon's rules is that the county can levy any amount up to that. And so uh, for the first three years of the levy, the county levied the full amount, anticipating based on our, our budget forecast that we would need that to provide the service level. And what we found in the first three years is that we had planned for a worst-case budget scenario, and we actually ended up having about a best-case budget scenario. And the county was able to provide several uh, areas of funding to the jail that were not anticipated. About $2.5 million in general fund that wasn't forecast available for jail funding that the commissioners continued to put toward jail funding. Uh, about uh, $2.5 million in levy tax collections higher than the county assessor had forecast the collection rate would be. And then uh, some funds in other revenues, state funds and other uh, funds that go to the jail uh, program. And so about $6 million in the first three years that were f provided for jail funding above what we had forecast and anticipated. So the other piece happened, the part of the perfect storm, was we also weren't spending the levy revenues uh, as fast as we'd anticipated. Our costs were lower than we'd anticipated they'd be uh, for a couple of reasons. One is the county has made some tremendous gains in managing its health care costs for employees. So our employee costs have fallen. Uh, and uh, in addition, because we are struggling to hire deputies uh, at the rate we anticipated we would be able to, uh, we haven't filled all the positions, so therefore we have 
uh, vacancies in the budget position. So we're saving money while we were uh, provided additional revenues that weren't anticipated. So that caused us to see a reserve start to grow in the levy funds. And my position was uh, government shouldn't collect from the citizens money that is more than required to perform the services the citizens have authorized and requested us to provide. And so uh, I went last year uh, to the budget committee and proposed that we reduce the amount levied so we wouldn't collect extra money. And I am committed to continuing to manage this uh, levy program uh, this way every year, and I anticipate this year's budget coming up in the next couple months we'll put this together. I fully anticipate requesting the budget committee continue to levy less than the 55 cents, at least for this next coming year. Uh, this will allow us to spend down the reserve that was drawn uh, or that was developed in the first three years to a, a reasonable level. And then this is not sustainable at 38 cents. So at a certain point, once the reserve is spent down a little bit, we'll need to make sure that we're collecting sufficient revenue to maintain the services at the level they are and certainly to maintain the services at the level promised in the levy. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we go from 38 cents right back to 55 cents. There could be somewhere in between, uh, and I don't know yet. We'll have to evaluate that on a year-by-year -year basis, but I'm committed to proposing to the Budget Committee and ultimately the Board of County Commissioners that we only collect those uh, funds necessary to provide the services that we've been asked to provide, and then uh, we'll look at it from there annually. Yeah, and I, I think that's, you know, we've shown that at Lane County time and time again that we're doing our best to uh, manage the finances of the people's money because, that you know, we're, we're managing other people's money that comes to us um, as best we can. You know, and you mentioned our, our improvements in our health insurance and managing our health insurance costs, and there's been many other things we've done from early retirement programs in our public works department um, to save lots of money in our road fund to um, just how we've restructured the whole county and and, and uh, made 14 departments down to nine now. So we, you know, there's five department heads we're no longer uh, employing, but it it's. Uh, you know, that that good management of our of the money and you know what's been great story to tell about the previous levy is those those three um, audits that were done they basically said that we we kept all the promises that we made in in the levy um, can you talk about the audit results for a few minutes yeah so uh, we have uh, worked with a private firm it's uh, called Moss Adams. Uh, they are a local firm here in town that does financial auditing. And we have uh, asked them uh, for three years now uh, to audit the levy funds, the levy account, and to report back on what that means or what, what the results are. And so they have done that. We have two reports from year one and year two of the final audit. The uh, I've been told by county administrative staff that the uh, third year audit has been completed, but yet I have not seen the report yet. So I think that's imminent that the county will receive that report. Uh, one of the uh, pieces of the audit is that uh, they make a statement of compliance with the language of the ballot measure that was passed. And uh, their audit language in the first two audits uh, says that, in our opinion, the schedule and management's assertion that the county complied with the aforementioned requirements for the year ended uh, June 30, uh, 15, and then 16, and then it'll be again uh, 14, and then 15, and then the last one will be 16, is fairly stated in all material aspects. So they have confirmed that uh, we have, in fact, complied with the language laid out and the, the uh, promises made in the ballot measure. So I fully anticipate that that will be the third year's audit report and the fourth year's audit report. And as long as I am the sheriff, that will be the audit report that uh, we will continue to make sure that we fully comply with all aspects of of the uh, levy funding and the ballot measure language that the community has entrusted us with. Yeah, and you know, it, it's really great that you know we made this promise and, I, and it's you know 
I want to reiterate to folks that this is a very narrow um, tax levy that we're proposing to renew. It has very specific language about what it can be spent on, which is basically it's about maintaining 255 local jail beds and uh, um, adding some detention and treatment beds to use services. And that's the only thing the monies can be spent on. They do get put in a separate account. And then they do get this audit every year to just confirm that that is exactly how the money was spent. So it can't be, um, you know, pulled away and spent on any special projects or anything. This is what it's being spent on, which is jail, jail bed, local jail beds and um, youth uh, detention and treatment, which is a really important uh, factor. You know, when the, when the first levy was go, was out on the ballot, um, you know, there are all sorts of questions about it. You know, the usual concern when people see something that's going to support uh, jail beds and, and youth detention is that everybody thinks that it is just about, um, you know, putting people away and, and arresting them and putting them away. And it has nothing to do with trying to get people um, treatment or diverted or anything like that. And I, I think I'm, I'm hoping that people are seeing how the jail really is utilized. And, and, it, and it really came out in the testimony yesterday that we had all these nonprofit agencies and, and including the public defender's office that testified about how having these local jail beds really benefits the folks that are put in the jail you know, that are arrested because they, they get enough time, you know, from their arrest at least to get some evaluations and maybe put into diversion programs and treatment. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how how a modern jail really operates? And, and, and it, our jail has even changed since 2013 and, and how we operate today. And, and what, what, what it's like to be, you know, arrested by, say, the Eugene Police Department or Springfield Police Department on some kind of property crime, and maybe you were found also holding a small amount of drugs because, uh, you know, you're probably dealing with an addiction issue. Uh, what happens to me when I end up in the jail? All right. Well, initially, uh, you get booked in and medically screened, and, uh, uh, and then you the first legal event that occurs is... Uh, if you don't get released before, uh, which can happen a number of ways, so uh, real quickly touch on that. Uh, often people get released from jail, and people are, are uh, because we have had a history of releasing people early, uh, people will assume that that was a release that the sheriff's office released them from the jail. And there are actually quite a few ways you can get out of jail legally without being released by the sheriff's office because of capacity. And so every person has the right to post bail, have a bail set and, and post bail uh, on all charges except murder in Oregon. And so unless you're in on homicide, you're going to have a bail set and uh, have the opportunity to post bail. In addition, uh, you can be released by the courts uh, and uh, or you can, the, there might not be a bail amount set. The, the court release staff may release you on your own or cognizance and give you a court date and release conditions. And so there's a variety of ways that happens. Uh, but if you don't release from, from jail, uh, your first appearance is an arraignment where you are taken in front of the court and made sure you're aware of uh, why you're being held. And uh, sometimes they'll work on bail setting and those kinds of things during that. And uh, at a certain point, you'll end up with an opportunity for trial, uh, and uh, the sentencing often will include treatment if you have uh, are identified as a person with a substance abuse or a mental illness or otherwise. And so what we were dealing with when our jail capacity was so low, we were down to uh, 125 beds. In fact, at one point, we are down to 120 beds just right before the jail levy passed in uh, November of 2012. And which is the lowest number of jail beds since 1980. I, I, on our on records that we have, our jail capacity records go back to 1980. They don't go farther than that. And that's about when our current jail opened. 
So it was before 1980, so about 40 years ago, before we could find a time we had less beds than this. And when we had so few beds, we were releasing all but the very most violent, dangerous offenders from our jail before they saw a courtroom or had any opportunity for assessment or uh, programming as far as alternative programs. And then what would happen is they wouldn't show up for court, and if they did show up for court, uh, their the, the treatment programs were not effective because when a person was sentenced to treatment, uh, their uh, the option if they didn't go to treatment was no penalty. There was no jail capacity, so if I chose to defy the court's order and not go to treatment, the judge couldn't put me in jail because if I got sent to jail, I would get released very shortly thereafter with my sentence considered served, and I was free to go commit more crimes, continue with my drug addiction, and whatever else was uh, causing me to act inappropriately in the community. And I would, again, run into law enforcement. I would get put back in the jail, and then we'd cycle through that same process again. So that is why you will see such a coalition uh, of support in the entire public safety community. It's not just the judges and the prosecutors and the police that want a bigger jail or a more functioning jail. Uh, it is the treatment providers who have a very strong interest in aiding and assisting their clients in becoming well and healthy. And they can't do that if there is not a jail capacity in the community to cause their clients to have the, the uh, incentive to stay a participant. And the public defender's office uh, has an interest in keeping their clients out of long-term custody. And what the public defender's office says is if we can't get our clients to court on the smaller, earlier crimes before there's a long, long list of charges and get them processed through local confinement and programs that can help them not repeat their criminal behavior with a short amount of custody, they end up being sentenced in for many years with a long list of felonies because we, we had been waiting until they accumulated enough that they could, we could send them to prison because we had no capacity here. So we were sending a lot more people to prison than the state's average because we would just wait until our criminals racked up enough charges to make them prison qualified, and we would bypass the county jail entirely. So it was a completely broken system. And while I have said we have not fixed our jail, we are functioning at a level that has substantially improved our public safety. Uh, I said we have reduced our capacity-based releases by 63%. That means we're still releasing people. Uh, but the people we're releasing are not as dangerous. And by and large, they're not person crime offenders. They are drug crime and property crime uh, offenders, which is still uh, a problem. And we're not making a significant impact on quality of life crimes in the community because we're not able to hold people accountable to that level yet. Uh, but incrementally, uh, we are making progress. So uh, those are the, the pieces of having a jail that are so critical to the system that if we can't hold people in the short term and get them dried out if they're uh, uh, suffering alcohol addiction, we can't get them clean enough to be coherent in courtroom if they're suffering a drug addiction, if we can't get them stabilized on their medicine if they're suffering from a mental illness, um, then they have a hard time functioning in the courtroom and or if they get released before they're stabilized and clean, they can't make it back to the courtroom. So um, it really is a very uh, interdependent system uh, with all law enforcement and courts and uh, treatment providers and public defenders, and uh, so we have we have grown our jail back to a very modest level, uh, but what at a level today that seems to be functioning for those uh, serious person crime criminals. Yeah, and that yeah that's really um, an important factor you know, for folks as they think about this renewal. You know, it's not that we're trying to warehouse people and, you know, and all, it has another impact in that um, we were tasked by the legislature when they passed um, House Bill 3194 back in 2015 um, to try and reduce how much 
prison time we were actually using in the state system as a county. And one of the things uh, I've been serving on the Public Safety Coordinating Council here in Lane County as the board's representative, uh, one of the things that became pretty obvious is how much having those local jail beds helps the programs that divert people from prison absolutely not be part of that prison population. So one of the things that may, may be um, hard for people to grasp is having local jail beds actually prevents having people in prison. And it's, it's for all the reasons you just talked about, uh, having the sanction beds for some of these um, diversion programs. You know, we can't take people through uh, veterans court or drug court if those judges in those courtrooms don't have the ability to sanction um, the folks when they don't follow their treatment plans. And that's what that's basically what those diversion courts are about. Right. And some of the other programs that we're doing, some of the, the earlier release programs and, and uh, where we're taking folks out of prison early, um, which is another interesting aspect of our jail. Um, you know, the, the state's been having a little bit of trouble with their um, female prison population and trying not to open another facility. Um, and it and Lane County has uh, recently signed a contract to take um, some I, I, I don't know if you call them downward departures or, or what the correct term is, but right. no, they're, they're yeah, they're female prisoners that are at the end of their state prison sentence, and they are within six months of discharge and returning to their community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's I guess, and then, and then and those you're going to be taking six of those um, prisoners out of the state system, so they don't have to hopefully open another. Uh, uh, female prison facility, which would be really expensive um, for the state, it, and it, with current budget problems, we all we all know the state's in. Um, but there's a reason why Lane County is able to do that, um, and it has to do with um, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, or PREA, as they call it. And apparently, we're the first um, county jail in Oregon that was certified to be to meet the the requirements of that. Can you Correct. talk about that a little bit? Correct. Yeah. So there's uh, it's it's a new it's been developing uh, in in recent years and uh, it's been a a requirement that jails have a a PREA um, policy and a system in place to uh, ensure the safety of our inmate population. And uh, recently uh, they have developed a uh, inspection standard for certification and essentially an audit of jails and prisons to ensure that they have all of those systems appropriately in place. And so uh, Oregon uh, be, has begun uh, implementing that at the uh, uh, inspection auditing level. And so Lane County was the first jail in Oregon that was inspected, audited for PREA standards against the state and national uh, standards and uh, has passed and was certified. And that is a requirement now for continued contract funding through uh, both uh, Federal Bureau of Prisons and State Department of Corrections. And so jails that can't meet or don't meet or won't meet, depending on their uh, position, um, would not be eligible for uh, contracting with the state Department of Corrections or the federal uh, prison entities. Uh, and so there's a number of reasons that the contracts are, are important in some communities and more than others. And uh, But we have had this contract with Department of Corrections for some years. This It's called the Reentry Services Contract. And the Sheriff's Office gets some of that contract funds. Uh, and we use those because we're housing those prisoners releasing from state penitentiary system uh, to their local community, and we put them in what we call our community release center. Uh, and uh, while they're with us, uh, they begin to get uh, education programs and uh, 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 job uh, seeking and uh, in that process, they're with us for a period of time, and then they transition into sponsors, which is a local reentry services 
program where they continue their education and treatment and uh, housing uh, efforts and jobs and uh, where they're able to get them successfully reintegrated back into our community where then they can be a working, uh, housed, productive uh, person back in our society. Without those services, uh, you can imagine somebody who maybe has spent a very lengthy sentence in prison, maybe many years, for them to just walk out of the prison doors in Salem or whichever state prison in Oregon, just walk out of those doors of that prison and then thumb a ride home, uh, they have nothing to start on. And so it's a very critical program to make sure that these men and women can successfully come back home and reintegrate, get back into society effectively. And uh, and so that has been usually dominated by men in the program we've had. So we amended our contract with the uh, Department of Corrections just, uh, I think I might have just signed off on it yesterday, uh, so it's to the county administrator to finalize. And we have... The contract has been amended to say that six of our beds, and that we've increased the capacity by six, and those six beds are reserved exclusively for females. Now, Lane is not the only county doing this now. There's been some other counties that have had the, the PREA certification, and uh, Marion, I know, is one, and there's probably two others I think I heard, um, that are taking somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 uh, or so, maybe a little more, uh, female prisoners uh, from the Department of Corrections into our release centers and processing them through to take that pressure off so that the state doesn't have to open an additional. Now, they don't have to build a new prison. They've got a couple of vacant facilities, but it's just like our jail, but in a larger scale. Our jail can sit vacant if we don't have deputies to run it, and it, it takes money to hire deputies to staff it. It takes money to provide the medical care once we have inmates living in it. It takes money to feed them. And so uh, the same thing at the state level. Uh, they have vacant facilities, and if they need to open them because their population is increasing, it's going to take more state dollars to do that. And the whole idea behind the Senate Bill 30, uh, 3194 that uh, the commissioner mentioned is that uh, the state has been saving money because we have been collectively, all 36 sheriffs in the state of Oregon and our jails have been working to reduce the state's prison population. Stabilize it first, now start reducing it. And as the state saves money, first of all, they didn't have to open or build new prisons. So that was the first savings that was supposed to go into this pot of money. And then secondly, as they save money because the state's prison population is shrinking, those savings go into this pot of money. And then this pot of money is then divided by formula across all 36 counties based on our involvement and our effectiveness at reducing. And then that money then is used locally to fund these programs that are evidence-based, proven practices to actually keep people from going to prison, reduce recidivism to keep them even from coming back to our own jails, and overall start to reduce the cost of criminal justice in the state of Oregon. And that becomes a little bit broader discussion because now we're discussing issues with the state's budget getting tight, the state's not necessarily maintaining their promise to the sheriffs and the counties to make sure that that amount of money that has been saved at the state level actually transfers to the county level. So therein will be a rub of whether we can maintain these programs and maintain our reduction in state prison bed use. And uh, I'm hopeful we will, but it starts to get dangerous when the legislature doesn't maintain its promise to the local funding and... Uh, will put the system out of balance quickly if we don't stay the course at the state level. Right, correct. And but the 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 real take home of all this is the the local money that we spend on keeping these jail beds open actually is leveraging state monies into the county um in this 3194 program right. and it's really um doing really good things about keeping people out of prison. That that's that's the 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 thing that I want people to understand is local jail beds equals less state prison beds because right. we're, we're actually, you know, and, and it's actually part of a, a, a system that's doing great rehabilitation work because it, it allows for sanctioned beds for these diversion programs and uh, sanctioned beds for people that are on parole and probation. So it, it's really um, a great, you know, a great part of our, our, justice system and, and particularly restorative justice where it brings these folks back to being um, 
productive members of our society. So this is the Bo's Nose Show, and we're speaking to Sheriff Byron Trapp. And if you want to get in on the conversation, um, you can call us at 646-721-9887 and just press 1 and that lets Robin, my call screener, know that you want to get in on the conversation. Or you can email us at talk at krbnradio.net. And I got an email from Becky, and she wanted to know a couple things, uh, Byron. First, um, she wanted to know if, if passing the levy will do anything to uh, help with the criminal problems out here in the Fern Ridge area. Right. Uh, the simple answer is no. Um, actually, in 2013, after the levy was passed by the voters, uh, a few months after, uh, we, I, and uh, our staff at the sheriff's office, uh, for quite a while, routinely received comments and criticism that uh, people said, "I voted for your levy, and I still don't have a deputy to come out here to my theft complaint." And uh, so the answer to that is, this levy doesn't provide services outside of jail and uh, youth detention and treatment. The levy, the ballot language. When you vote, if you read the ballot language, it says that these funds are to be used exclusively for jail operations and uh, youth services. So uh, it was never intended to provide for uh, policing services or to enhance our, our law enforcement presence in Lane County. It's unfortunate. I would love to find a funding mechanism uh, to do that. Uh, so far, there has not been a funding source or mechanism that has been palatable to the community like the jail levy has been. So uh, we will continue to look at options uh, for patrol funding, uh, but we are uh, very limited. Uh, patrol, I think, today is the sheriff's office weakest link. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's barely staffed sufficiently to provide an on-duty 24-hour presence. And up until last February, just about a year ago, uh, we reinstalled 24-hour patrol for the first time consistently in five years. It had been uh, uh, essentially since about uh, fall of 2010 that uh, we had had on-duty 24-hour presence. Now, we still had 24-hour response. It's just that we'd have to call deputies in the wee hours and wake them up, and they'd have to get their boots on and get out to their driveway to their police car and drive down the road to wherever that call was. wasn't the most efficient way to operate an emergency response because that delayed our response dramatically. And unfortunately, in some cases, with very, very serious calls for service with people in very bad ways, that we were uh, substantially delayed than we would have been had we had on-duty deputy sheriffs. So uh, it's been problematic. I understand that. Uh, we also are, even though we are back to 24 hours, uh, we're still not staffed at a level that we can respond to deputy to every call for service. So often people will call in, and it, mostly on property crimes, um, we'll send them their own police report in the mail, and we request that you fill it out and mail it back to us, and we'll record it, we'll document everything, we'll enter your stolen property in the law enforcement data system and so if it's found somewhere we can identify it as yours and reload and get it back to you uh, but that's not the way people expect to be serviced by law enforcement i understand that so it's a challenge for us it has been i've been a member of this office for almost 29 years and uh, it's been a struggle all those years to maintain a an effective level of policing for this community community wants a lot more, they demand a lot more, and I believe they deserve a lot more than we've provided and can provide. Uh, there's just not an acceptable way to fund it that's been identified yet. Yeah. I will say one thing that the levy does do for the Firm Ridge community is, is those people that are arrested out here, um, then they at least have a jail sale for the most part they're going to stay in for a short while and, and at least get into the criminal justice system, whereas um, prior to 2013, uh, when you only had 120 beds, if they arrested somebody, you know, particularly, say, one of the Benita um, dep contract deputies, sometimes those people made it back out to Benita before the deputy did. Right. Yeah, and they it, were, you know, we're still, like I said, we haven't fixed the those misdemeanor uh, crimes and 
the nonviolent property and drug crimes, even if they're felonies, those people often yeah. are released because of capacity yet. So there's still a deficit in our system. I, I will not say that we have fixed it by any means. Um, no, but we, we, the we have definitely. improved it measurably. And with the violent crime uh, offenders, uh, we have made great gains, and I believe our community is substantially safer from the violent crime offenders that uh, we weren't keeping in custody. And people forget the kind of people we released before the levy passed and we increased our capacity. Uh, in 2012, we released three people pending homicide from our jail because they were on those days, not all three on the same day, on different days, uh, but on those days, they were the least dangerous offender in our jail. And they had killed yeah. a person in our county they had taken the life of a family member of somebody from our county. They will never return, and we could not keep them in our jail. Now, I tell people, here's the caveat. They weren't the the really terrifying axe murderers that movies are made of. Uh, two of them were drunk drivers that killed an innocent person driving on our community highways. Uh, one of them was kind of violent. One of them went fishing with his buddy out of Oak Ridge at Hills Creek, uh, they got drunk building camp. Uh, he beat his buddy to death with a piece of firewood. He did not stay in jail because he was the least dangerous person that day. Everybody else in the jail beyond him was more dangerous. So we were at a level that was really frightening for this community. So I say we're at a functional level today. We have greatly improved what we can provide for public safety in our community today with our jail capacity, but it is by no means fixed. And property crimes and drug crimes uh, are still a problem that we have yet to effectively address with jail capacity. I I agree, and I, I think we're you know we're working on those issues, and there's some longer-term solutions the board's working towards. Um, and we'll we'll see if we can find a, a palatable way to fund that that patrol function because I definitely um, we're we're not um, a, a truly functioning public safety system here in Lane County. So right. Becky had another question, and and here's where I get to open the minefield for you. All right. Um, she wanted to know about sanctuary status and uh, what's that? Know, yeah, and. Yeah, and then she she said, you know, aren't we already a, a sanctuary state? Um, so why are people asking about sanctuary counties? And I and I I pointed some people to the Oregon State Sheriff's Association statement on this because I think they explain it pretty well. But right. you might want to just you know explain to people what the 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 36 sheriffs across the state have said, and um, and maybe we can talk a little bit more beyond that about what it means, you know, the difference between a municipal police chief relationship with the city council and a sheriff's relationship with the county commission um, a little bit. So first, why don't you talk about what the sheriff's association said about sanctuary status? Sure. So I kind of joked about what's that because it's like nobody's heard of that lately. Uh, <laughs> permeated our conversations in many of our communities. So, um I don't mean to take it lightly and joke that it's it's not a serious issue, uh, but uh, it is uh, forefront and seems like all conversations at all levels of government. Uh, and so the uh, Oregon sheriffs, uh, as a group, uh, there's a, a formal association that uh, we all participate together and support each other through, um, and. Uh, have looked at this overall in detail and, and looked at uh, all the various issues that relate to us as sheriffs and our obligations in, in holding uh, defendants in our county jails and, and working with all of our law enforcement partners. And the bottom line is really that there is a, uh, a state statute, it's uh, Oregon Revised Statute 181A.820, and anybody can go on the internet just type in ORS or Oregon Revised Statute 181A, like Adam, 0 .820, and you can read the statute for yourself. And, and it essentially says that uh, Oregon law enforcement, which is all state and county and city law enforcement, are uh, prohibited from uh, using uh, state 
or uh, local agency monies and equipment or personnel for the purpose of detecting or apprehending persons whose only violation is that they are of foreign citizenship uh, in violation of federal immigration laws. And so um, it essentially says that local law enforcement can't go out and, and just look for uh, people who are not lawfully in the country. Um, it does say that while we can't do that specifically, it does say that we certainly may cooperate with all law enforcement, including federal law enforcement and immigration uh, and customs uh, enforcement, ICE uh, specifically, in uh, communicating citizenship status if those people are arrested for other criminal behavior. And so it doesn't prohibit us from communicating and working with ICE and immigration and other federal partners. Uh, but what that means, though, is that uh, Oregon, uh, by this statute, can be argued that we're, we already provide some of that sanctuary status uh, because what people need to know is they should have no fear of their local law enforcement, whether it's the state police or uh, county sheriff deputies or city police officers, from doing any uh, direct immigration enforcement. And so what happens in the local communities is that if a person is arrested and taken to a county jail, uh, almost all Oregon sheriffs uh, have a process, and uh, we certainly do in Lane County. When you're booked into our jail, your information as an individual is entered into the Oregon's law enforcement data system. Uh, that is shared regionally with law enforcement and with federal law enforcement partners to include ICE. And so if you are listed as a foreign-born uh, person in our jail, ICE will be notified of that. And then ICE rarely calls us and wants to know more about any of those people because most of them don't hit their radar. They are people that aren't committing violent crimes. They're, they're uh, minor offenders. They're not the type of people ICE is looking for. ICE is really targeting those that are dangerous in our community, those that are sexual predators, those that are violent uh, offenders with person crimes, major assaults, homicides, those kinds of things. Those are the people that ICE is targeting. And so often we will never know if they're illegal or not. Uh, I can arrest somebody who tells me they were born in Canada. Doesn't mean they're necessarily here illegally. They could tell me they're born in Mexico. Doesn't mean they're here illegally. Just means they're foreign born. So we make that notification, and we are rarely ever told if that person is legally in the country or not. It's irrelevant to us. And we process those people uh, through the local criminal justice uh, system, through the courts, just like any other person would be. And the uh, immigrations and enforcement may or may not uh, seek to uh, uh, reach out to us on that person. If they do, uh, we will coordinate with them and we'll tell ICE when that person's due to be released. And it's up to ICE to be here to uh, take their custody when we release them from our jail. So uh, we're not going to transport somebody to another location to hand them off to ICE. We'll release them from jail. If ICE is here, they're here. If they're not, they're not. And so that's the level of cooperation. It's not it's not, uh, uh, you know, covert or, uh, you know, anything uh, scary or, or deceiving about it. It's fairly on its face simple. Uh, I know there's a lot of misconceptions, and I know that there's people that just heard me say that that aren't going to believe that that's actually true, uh, and I can't uh, help that. I just tell you the, the way it is. So, um, and I, as a sheriff, I will say this, that I will uh, never stop cooperating with any law enforcement partners. I think that is dangerous to our community's public safety in many ways, and uh, we need to be thoughtful. Uh, we need to be uh, within the law, but I think all law enforcement, federal, state, and local, uh, need to have cooperative relationships and uh, the ability to work together and uh, I will, I will not do anything that jeopardizes those relationships because then that causes us to be isolated and insulated from those resources that uh, greatly assist our community on a daily basis. So um, there are some political pieces interwoven in that. Uh, I also you know, believe that if you're uh, committing criminal behavior that you need to be held accountable. So uh, part of the sanctuary city, sanctuary county argument 
to me rings a little hollow is that if we need to if we have concerns we should address that by changing the laws and not making a sheriff uh, choose which laws will or won't be enforced in a county um, we have three branches of government for a reason um, I don't think anyone should trust me to uh, take on the role beyond the executive branch, which is where I live as a law enforcement officer. Uh, the judicial branch uh, determines if the laws are legal and appropriate and constitutional, and the legislative branch writes the laws. And so it's my job to enforce those that are written and the courts to decide if they're valid to be enforced. And when you blend those and I become the one deciding what's constitutional or not, and I become the one deciding which laws to enforce or not, and I assume all those branches, I mean, that's what we call dictators and those kinds of things, and that, that just not what we're supposed to be doing in our government form here. So um, I think that there's ways to work through these if communities have concerns, and but causing one person to make those kinds of decisions, whether it's on immigration or uh, gun control or you name the, the hot button, I think we should address each of those issues the same way, and we should each address them in our appropriate uh, roles in government. And so, and that touches a little bit on what uh, Jay was asking about our relationship with our governing bodies. And the sheriffs are unique uh, as an elected official. Uh, a city police chief generally reports to either the mayor as an elected official uh, or the city council as a body of elected officials. Some chiefs are hired and fired and report directly to their mayor, and some report directly to a city manager or their their city council. Um, a sheriff doesn't report to anyone except the voters. And so while I have a great relationship, at least you know, Jay may say something different here, so... Uh, but from my perspective, I feel very fortunate as a sheriff. I have a great working relationship with my commissioners. Uh, there's five of them for Lane County, and their control over the sheriff's office is limited to how many positions I can have funded and what my budget is out of county's general fund. So they, they approve my budget. They allocate funds to me that they believe appropriate based on my request and they approve how many employees I can have in the sheriff's office. And today I have about 200 and, I don't know what I have, 290-ish employees. And so uh, outside of that, once my budget's approved and I have my employees, I can func uh, form my, my department uh, as I see uh, fit and appropriate. I can provide services or not provide services uh, at whatever levels I decide is appropriate. Now, they can certainly give me feedback, and they do, on where they see issues of concern or services of importance for their constituents. And I take that feedback and say, okay, great, I, I get that. And often my answer is, uh, if you give me some more money, I can certainly provide a, a better service in that area. But uh, they can't fire me if I don't uh, follow their wishes, and uh, you know, essentially, we're equals. We have, you know, similar standing as independent elected officials. So it is a unique position as sheriff that uh, uh, is substantially different, and that's why you will see different uh, responses in the community from uh, city police chiefs. Often, you won't see an outspoken city police chief. The political positions of the city and their policies will be spoken and established from the mayor and the city council. I'm, I'm glad you pointed it out because it's one of the things I've, I've tried to explain to people um, as they as they ask about the county becoming, quote, a sanctuary county, is that um, we, the commissioners, can't tell you how to operate your department. And, and that's because uh, and and sheriffs are really unique um, in that they are the only elected law enforcement official, um, really in this country and in, in our system, uh, and and um, go, dating back to England, <laughs> right? And, and the way sheriffs are dealt with, and and are, right. are, are really the ninth century, yeah, yeah, are really considered the people's um, policeman. Uh, and and you answer to them. You don't answer to us. And and I I'm glad you kind of pointed that out. Um, just you know, one of the questions um, that has come up is is does the ORS um, that 
kind of prevents uh, you from actually doing anything beyond, you know, the cooperation once you've arrested somebody. Um, does that ORS put at risk our federal funding at all? Are, are, are you are, are you just kind of not really knowledgeable of what, what the um, Trump administration was saying relative to sanctuary um, issues on that, on funding yeah, federal funding? I think that is yet to be determined. I, I think there's one camp that says it potentially does uh, maybe f- cause us to fall within the uh, administration's definition of a sanctuary county or a state. Um, I've also heard some people uh, speculate that the language in President Trump's executive order has, and I can't remember exactly what it says, but it's along the lines of a jurisdiction who willfully refuses to cooperate uh, and assist. And so uh, some people say, this doesn't say we're, we can't cooperate and assist. So therefore, uh, this doesn't fall into that category. So I, I tend to think we're probably more in that latter as far as how I've understood it and it's been explained, but I, I think the jury's still out and, and we need to see some more definition from the federal government on what they think and what they mean, and, uh, and and that'll yet to be seen. And here's the other, I guess there's another point that I f- should have mentioned as well uh, with from the Sheriff's Association response, and, and my opinion as well, is that uh, the uh, President Trump's position, the new administration in Washington's position and direction, and uh, even if uh, local legislation occurs in repeals, which there is some talk of uh, this state statute. If that was to go away, uh, I would say that there will be no change or very unlikely that we would see any changes in police policies or practices in the state of Oregon, and for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, as a state law enforcement officer, uh, I am certified as a state Uh, peace officer, uh, which means I can only enforce law in the state of Oregon. I can't go to California and act as a law enforcement officer. I'm not certified there. I can't go to the state of Washington or Idaho. I I leave the state of Oregon. I'm no longer a police officer. I also don't have the authorities to uh, enforce federal law. That requires a federal agent, a federal peace officer. uh, uh, The same way it works for federal law enforcement, a federal law enforcement officer can't come into Oregon and enforce Oregon statutes, and they can't come into Lane County and and enforce Lane Code. Only Oregon-certified peace officers can do that. Uh, And so uh, there's no immigration laws in Oregon statutes for me to enforce, and I can't enforce the federal ones. And uh, and even if there were, uh, it goes back to this discussion about when we create new laws, we don't create more police to enforce more laws. And so, by and large, uh, most law enforcement agencies, certainly this sheriff's office, and I think most agencies within Lane County, don't have the resources to take on additional enforcement efforts, and certainly not focused on federal level of enforcement concerns. We are always going to look at immigration and other federal law enforcement, like weapons, ATF, you know, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, enforcement, those kinds of things. There's a federal agency to do that for a reason, and those are done by the federal government. They always probably will. doesn't mean that there couldn't be a task force that local law enforcement agents participate on that have federal credentials for focused efforts. But by and large, those are not going to occur, certainly not going to be created and see any immediate changes. And that's, I, I really believe that. I I think you could eliminate this Oregon statute. Uh, You could uh, uh, see whatever the Trump administration wants to put forward, and local law enforcement uh, isn't going to have the capacity to engage beyond what we already do every day. And like we already spoke just a few minutes ago, what we do is very limited in this county for law enforcement already. Well, Byron, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today about the jail levy and, and, and uh, your insightful comments about sanctuary and, and immigration enforcement. Um, we're getting pretty close to the end of the Bo's Nose show here. Um, so folks, uh, you want to 
give us a, a shout next week. Um, we'll be back on Wednesday, 4 p.m. this time. And uh, Byron, thank you for coming on. Thank you. It was a pleasure. All right. And um, we should uh, be back next week here from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon. And hopefully you might have learned something today on the Bose Nose Show. And thank you, Sheriff Trapp. And everybody, have a safe evening. And we'll talk to you next week from the Bose Nose Show. <laughs>